Welcome to the FX Church Podcast. Um, I'm glad you've chosen to join with us and, and listen in. We are in the midst of our summer series in the book of Joshua in the Old Testament. Uh, we've titled that series Inheritance as God is trying to communicate the inheritance that we have in Him and trying to communicate that we are in an inheritance battle in this world. Um, and God has set the terms of that inheritance and what it should look like. And we have to either embrace those terms or uh, fight them. And that's what we see happening in the book of Joshua. It's what we see even happening in our nation today. We find ourselves in waiting like God's people were at this time when the book had been written. They'd been waiting 600 years for the promised inheritance that was given to Abraham. They'd lived in slavery for 400 years. They'd been wandering 40 years in the desert. And they'd been clinging this whole time to an inheritance that most of the people, as they clung to the the inheritance, wouldn't ever see in their lifetime, all while being told to be strong and courageous. You know, the question for us is, would we still believe and lead others to believe that Yahweh saves, which is what Joshua means, and believe in His promised inheritance, especially in the mess that things seem to be in? And that's where we find ourselves in our country and in our world today. And so I hope that we can give you some encouragement uh, as you listen to this podcast. And remember what God says in Joshua 1, 6. He says, Be strong and courageous, for you will distribute the land I swore to their fathers to give them as an inheritance. You know, God is about us learning to be strong and courageous in the right things, what a relationship with Him and how things are supposed to work. And someday the Bible says that Jesus is going to come again and we are going to be with him and he is going to distribute the land that his heavenly father has promised as an inheritance to us on the new earth and the new heaven. That's what we're walking into. This week, what we want to look at as we drop into Joshua, moving from chapter 8 to chapter 9 in the book of Joshua, we want to look at alliances, oaths, and treaties. You know, there's a lot of these conversations in our world today. Who do we align ourselves with? Who have we given our word to? Who do we try to appease and and make treaties and get along with? And there's a lot of conflict in our country and in our world right now over that. And this passage kind of gets to to the heart of how God wants us to be careful with the alliances, oaths, and treaties we make, and how even if we make the wrong ones, how He can still work out His grace to make His character known to the world around us. That's just how amazing He is as a God. And so the question for us is, why do we make these alliances and oaths and treaties? Well, if if we're honest, we normally make them because we're trying to get an earthly benefit. We're trying to avoid an earthly cost or suffering. And so we try to work things out so that we don't have to deal with the reality of the mess that we're in, or at least soothe it. And the Bible tells us that we're supposed to go into the reality of the world and share the truth and, and deal with the reality of what we're walking into and even find joy in doing that and, and rejoice in how we see God work as we move into the world. And you know, really the alliances and oaths and treaties that we make expose what we're truly looking to inherit. And, and, and it exposes what we'll do to keep what we have 
right? Or to get something we think we should have. And so our alliances, our oaths, and our treaties, that the words we give are incredibly important. A matter of fact, it was King Solomon, David's son, who inherited the kingdom that that David had established or that God had established through David. He got himself in huge trouble because he kept making these alliances and oaths and treaties. And he wrote the book of Ecclesiastes at the end of his life, basically saying, you know, I've protected all this, but it's all meaningless. It's just meaningless. The best we can hope for is to fear God and enjoy the life he's given us as we make him known. And you know, that's what Solomon did. He misinterpreted the inheritance that was coming. And he ended up with a disaster. His sons end up splitting the kingdom, and it's a mess. And you know, our enemy, the Bible says our enemy is trying, not a full frontal approach, but he's trying to destroy subtly with the alliances, oaths, and treaties that we make, which is what happened to Solomon's kingdom. It's what he tells Joshua and his people at this time to be very careful of. You know, the Abrahamic covenant, okay? So this is an inheritance given to Abraham that God would make Abraham a great nation, and Abraham committed himself to the Lord God. It's the same covenant that we're a part of, that we've been grafted or adopted in, the Bible says, because of what Jesus... Jesus means Yahweh saves. Joshua, the word Joshua means Yahweh saves. Jesus and Joshua are actually the same name. And the Abrahamic covenant says, I will bless those who bless you and curse those who curse you. But it's our responsibility to be careful where we give our blessings and to be careful of our curses. And so God lays that out as we drop back into the story. In Joshua chapter 8, God's people have went through a trying time. They did some things they shouldn't have. Uh, They weren't careful. And now they find themselves after winning a battle that God did for them. In Joshua 8.34, it says, Afterwards, after the battle, Joshua read aloud all the words of the law, the blessings as well as the curses, according to all that is written in the book of the law. There was not a word of all that Moses had commanded that Joshua did not read before the entire assembly of Israel, including the women and the little children, and the foreigners who were with them. He's saying, look, we need to be sure that we believe all of God's word, and we're seeking him for his decisions, or it's going to end up costing us. Is there still forgiveness and grace and reconciliation? Yes, but there are consequences on this side of eternity until God fully comes back with his full inheritance that we're going to have to live in, in the midst of, until that comes. And God's trying to give his warning. And so the Bible, these these books, these words that Moses gave were, were a testimony to God's people of what God's character looked like and what it looked like to love him above any other alliance, oath, or treaty and what it meant when you gave your alliance, oath, or treaty with others. So we drop, drop in. The, the children of Israel have won two great battles against Jericho and Ai. They're, they're kind of at a moment of great, prestige. There's been revival as the people wanted to hear God's word read all day long, and they stayed there. I mean, there's this high moment. And then in Joshua 9.1, we see when the kings heard about Jericho and Ai, that's all the kings of the promised land. Remember, they're leaving slavery. They've crossed the Jordan River. They're going into the land that was promised to Abraham 600 years before, and they know it's going to be a battle just like today. We know that it's not a physical battle, but it's a spiritual battle as we move into the places where God's word, his 
laws, his, his grace, his love needs to be declared. It says, when all the kings heard about Jericho and Ai, those who were west of the Jordan in the hill country in the Judean foothills and all along the coast of the Mediterranean Sea towards Lebanon, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites, they formed a unified alliance to fight against Joshua and Israel. You see, there's the first alliance. The question is, why are we aligning ourselves? They could have formed an alliance to go and surrender to Israel. They could have formed an alliance that said, you know, we need to move because God has promised this land to these people. We've seen this coming. We saw what God did in Egypt. He made the Jordan River stop. Man, we've seen the miracles. We are scared to death of this God. So either we surrender to him and to his people, or we flee and let them have it. Instead, they said, we've got to fight it. And this is what we do, isn't it? That there comes moments, crises of belief in our life where we have to make a decision. Are we going to follow God or are we going to make alliances, oaths, and treaties to try to keep what we have or get the life we want? Versus saying, no, I want to know what God wants. And these people don't care what God wants. They're just trying to keep what they think is theirs and that they have a right to. And in Joshua 9, 3, it says, when the inhabitants of Gibeon, though, heard that Joshua, what Joshua had done to Jericho and Ai. So now Gibeon kind of steps out. They're saying, you know, here's all these ones that have aligned, but I'm not sure we want to align to fight against this God and his people. It says, so what did they do? Well, neither did they flee, nor did they fight, nor did they surrender. Here's what they did. Verse four of chapter nine, they acted deceptively. They gathered provisions and took worn-out sacks on their donkeys and old wineskins cracked and mended. They were old, patched, sandals on their feet and threadbare clothing on their bodies. Their entire provision of bread was dry and crumbly. They went to Joshua in the camp at Gilgal and said to him and the men of Israel, We have come from a distant land. Please make a treaty with us. So you've got an alliance that's at war, and now these guys are like, we need a, a treaty because we know that we're done for, and, and we don't know what to do, and we don't want to flee. And so they come deceptively, and here's the deal. Joshua and the men of God make a terrible decision. Verse 7, then the men of Israel replied to the Hivites. That's the Gibeonites were Hivites. They were a part of the Hivite clan. Perhaps you live among us. How can we make a treaty with you? They said to Joshua, we are your servants. Then Joshua asked them, who are you and where do you come from? They replied to him, your servants have come from a faraway land because of the reputation of the Lord, your God. In other words, of Yahweh, the, the true God. For we have heard of his fame and all that he did in Egypt and all that he did to the two Amorite kings beyond the Jordan, Sihon, king of Hezbon, and Og, king of Basham, who was in Astoreth. So, so here they lay this out and they say, look, we recognize that, that we're from far away. And then it says, 
Verse 11, so our elders and the inhabitants of our land told us, take provisions with you for the journey. Go and meet them and say, we are your servants. Please make a treaty with us. This bread of ours was warm when we took it from our houses as food on the day we left to come to you. But take a look, it's now dry and crumbly. These wineskins were new when we filled them, but look, they're cracked. And these clothes and sandals of ours are worn out from the extremely long journey. You see, they're trying to prove that, that you want to love us. And this is kind of how we do relationships, unfortunately, in our world. We try to convince people that, that we're worth loving, that we're worth something. And we act deceptively often instead of just being honest and suffering the consequences of that honesty. We try to cover up, to not let people know what's really in our heart and who we really are because we're just so afraid to be exposed because we know the fear of God. We know that if there is a God and I have to stand before him, that panics me. And and so we try to cover up. We try to make alliances, oaths, and treaties for our own benefit instead of saying we surrender. And even these guys are saying we want to be your servants and they're not lying. We'll see that the Gibeonites actually aren't lying about that. And God is still going to use this mess like he does in everyone's life in the Bible for his glory. But there are consequences that come about because of this. You know, Proverbs 18, 17 says, The first to state his case seems right until another comes and cross-examines him. You see, so often we get deceived. I see this happen when people have a story to tell and you feel bad for their sob story and so you, you give them something. People initially state their case, but it's our job as believers to seek the counsel of the Lord, to ask Him what He wants us to do before we give a yes or a no, to be patient and wait if necessary. But here's what happens. Verse 14 of Joshua 9. Then the men of Israel took some of their positions provisions, but did not seek the Lord's counsel. You see that? They did not seek the Lord's counsel. So Joshua established peace with them and made a treaty to let them live. And the leaders of the community swore an oath to them. You see, they took without seeking. And that is something we continue to do. We continue to try to take and use the resources around us, the relationships and everything, but we don't seek the Lord in those things. We look at the outward appearance, the circumstances and say, well, it seems right. It looks like this is the right decision. Instead of patiently asking, instead of seeking the Lord, instead of saying, hey, I need to seek the Lord on this, we just kind of give haphazardly our yeses and our noes, which we'll look at in a minute. And And we look at what we found and say, well, obviously this must be the right decision. And we don't realize that we live in a world with an enemy that's constantly trying to to subtly deceive us. And God is saying, hey, come to me. And listen, the men of Israel in the last battle before they went and fought Ai didn't seek the Lord. This tends to be a habit of us and of the Bible and God's people that they just kind of run because the circumstances look right, seems right, so I do it, instead of asking God, what do you want? And, and it may not turn out well for my earthly benefit, but that doesn't mean it wasn't from you. And if it turns out well for my earthly benefit, it doesn't automatically mean it was from God. And so we have to be very careful. Look what happens in verse 16. It says, three days after making the treaty with him, three 
days. They couldn't wait three days to pray and seek the Lord and ask His opinion. They had to solve the problem now. We live in a culture that's all about now. It's instant. We have to do something about this now. We have no patience to seek God, to to seek His Word, to, to look at what He wants. It's all about circumstantially trying to fix things, and it's killing us. And we're making oaths and treaties, and we're hitting likes on Facebook and social media, and we don't even realize that when we hit a like, we're, we're giving our word to that, that we agree with that. We don't think that way anymore. We need to be very careful on how we do this. And then it says, they heard that the Gibeonites were their neighbors living among them. So the Israelites set out and reached the Gibeonite cities on the third day. Now the cities were Gibeon, Cher, Parath, Beroth, and Kirith Jerem. But the Israelites did not attack them because the leaders of the community had sworn an oath to them by the Lord, the God of Israel. In other words, they recognized that their word carried with it the God that they represented. Then the whole community grumbled against the leaders. Can I tell you this happens all the time? That there are no leaders that are perfect. There's no father that's perfect. There's no mother that's perfect. There's no boss that's perfect. There's no pastor that's perfect. There's no church. There, there's no one who, who always makes the right decisions. And then what ends up happening, and we see this in the Old Testament, is people start grumbling about the leaders, and then there's a decision to make. Will we still submit ourselves and maybe challenge the leaders, or will we now try to overthrow them because we think we won't make mistakes like they did? when we just make the same mistakes over and over again, just like everybody else. And we need to throw ourselves at the grace of God. And so here you have the community grumbling against the leaders. Even in the book of Acts, you have this, when the early church is founded. And so many people say, I want to go back and have like the church of Acts. It doesn't exist. The church of Acts was a disaster. Do some research. Racism was prominent kind of racism, definitely, maybe not racism, but definitely like exclusivity was practiced for about the first decade or 15 years of the church until Peter or until Paul confronts Peter on it. People were having to become Jewish when they converted to Christianity early on in the church, oftentimes, to receive the full rights. And Paul challenged that and said, that's not of God. Even the reason we have deacons is because widows and older women were fighting over food rations. And they said, we got to get some guys that can take care of this. They can break up fights. That's the early church. We are in such desperate need to seek God in our decision-making. And instead we run out and we try to make alliances and oaths and treaties to fix the problems of our life instead of leaning into him and leading into his people, even when his people are messy. Because the community decides here not to overthrow the leaders. They decide to submit to one another and to continue to move forward with God's plan. It's a beautiful picture of the world. In verse 19, it says, All the leaders answered them, We have sworn an oath to them by the Lord, the God of Israel, and now we cannot touch them. This is how we will treat them. We will let them live so that no wrath will fall on us because of the oath we swore to them. In other words, if we swear an oath and then go against it, God's going to hold us accountable for that. It's not about them and their deception. Now it's on us to keep our word. Listen, this is a radical statement right here. These are a people that understand God, his heart, and his covenants, and they are careful not to break them because they understand the wrath they're going to bring on themselves. And then it goes on in verse 21. It says, they also say, let them live. 
So the Gibeonites became woodcutters and water carriers for the whole community, as the, as the leaders had promised them. Joshua summoned the Gibeonites and said to them, Why did you deceive us by telling us you live far away from us when in fact you live among us? Therefore you are cursed and will always be slaves, woodcutters and water carriers from the house of my God. You see, they said they wanted to be servants, and now God's holding them to their covenant. You will be servants from here on out. We're going to hold our covenant, but Joshua says, we're going to hold you to the other end of the bargain. It's kind of when we commit our life to Christ and we surrender to him. And he says, if you love me, you'll obey my commands. Not because you're trying to get something, but because you recognize that you made an oath and I made an oath and we're going to live by the boundaries of that oath. That my salvation is a free gift to you, but your proper response is gratitude and thanksgiving through obedience. See, that's what's happening here. And it says they'll always be slaves. Remember, God's people were slaves at one point. God isn't holding these people to anything that he hasn't held other people that have broken their word and been deceivers in the past, including his own children. It goes on to say this in verse 24, the Gibeonites answered him. Now, what do you think Gibeon's answer is going to be? Do you think, oh, that's too hard. You're being mean. How dare you do this to us? Look at their answer. It's an incredible answer of faith. Verse 24, the Gibeonites answered him, Joshua himself, who means Yahweh who saves. It was clearly communicated to your servants. They're still referring to themselves as your servants to God's people, to the body that God has established through Abraham. It's communicated to your servants that the Lord your God had commanded his servant Moses to give you all the land and to destroy all the inhabitants of the land before you. We greatly feared for our lives because of you, and that is why we did this. Now we are in your hands. Do whatever you think is right. What a statement of like absolute understanding of the decision they made and owning their deception. They're saying, look, We recognize we were scared to death. We deceived you. We recognize your God could annihilate us in a minute. So we throw ourselves at your mercy in the midst of our deception and say, you do whatever you think is right. Verse 26, this is what Joshua did to them. He delivered them from the hands of the Israelites. They did not kill them. On the day he made them woodcutters and water carriers, on that day he He made them woodcutters and water carriers as they are today. So whenever this book was written for the community and for the Lord's altar and the place he would choose. Oh my goodness. This is so cool. Look at this. Not only do the Gibeonites say, do whatever you think is right. Joshua, Yahweh who saves, says to them, look, we will uphold our covenant. We expect you to uphold yours. And I'm actually going to give you a special place of service. They became the wood cutters and the wood carriers for all the sacrifices Israel would ever make. They became the fuel for the fire that represented the eradication of sin in Israel, of God's mercy and forgiveness. They brought the water that the priests used for cleansing the animals, and cleansing themselves, and for drinking for the people. God says, you know what? 
these people have so much faith. I'm going to give them a special opportunity to serve me all their days. And we have evidence when you read the scripture, they were faithful to serving God all the way through until they were exterminated because of a wicked king and his terrible decision that cost the nation dearly because of what he did. I mean, they're providing the fire to to have the feasts and the food and the forgiveness and and the water to stay hydrated. How how amazing that they are the life bringers, the life givers of God's people. Can I just tell you, the New Testament says those of us who are in Christ, we are that for God's people today, that we are his servants and our job is to bring the, the fire and the water. You know, there was a message given a long time ago. Someone said, each of us carries two buckets, one with a G on it and one with a W on it, one that's gas and one that's water. And using gas at the right time and in the right environment is good. Using it in the wrong environment, it'll blow up and destroy. The same with water. Using it in the right environment, using it wrongly can put out the fire that we need to keep going. And it's kind of the same thing with God's people. This is an amazing picture of God's mercy and people who understand the Gibeonites and Joshua and the leaders who understand the brokenness of our world and that when you make an alliance or an oath or a treaty, it's meant to be kept. And if it's broken, that there are consequences that have to be dealt with. We're arguing about this in our nation today. And look at the forgiveness and the grace that's given here to one another, that the people are giving grace to the leaders. The leaders are putting back grace, receiving the grace and forgiveness and putting it on God. The Gibeonites are receiving mercy and grace for what they don't deserve. This is such a picture of God's heart and God's grace to people. Eventually, the Gibeonites were fully assimilated into Israel. And what's really cool, listen, the Gibeonites were even mentioned as a major part of the people of the Israelites who rebuilt the walls of Jerusalem after the exile in Nehemiah 3, verse 7. Wow. See, that's us. I'm not Jewish. I'm not Israel. I'm not an Israelite, but God has grafted me in. I deserve death. I deserve punishment. And God has given me his mercy. He's asked me to serve him, to give my life. And I want to do it because I believe that he is God. And I believe that there is a promised inheritance that's coming and that his word is true. Man, what a powerful, powerful story this is. We go on and in Joshua 10, all of a sudden, they get tested. See, their treaty, their covenant, their alliance, their oath is going to get tested. It says in Joshua 10.1, Now Adonai, Zedek, king of Jerusalem, heard that Joshua had captured Ai and completely destroyed it, treating Ai and its king as he had Jericho and its king, and, and that the inhabitants of Gibeon had made a peace treaty with Israel and were living among them. So Adonai, Zedek, and his people were greatly alarmed because Gibeon was a large city, like one of the royal cities. It was larger than Ai and its men were warriors. This even makes it more amazing. Because these were some of the greatest warriors in the area, and they chose to surrender to the God of Israel, to become water carriers and wood carriers instead of the soldiers they were meant to be. 
in their own mind. These, like it amazed them that these powerful men would surrender to Almighty God. And that should amaze us too. That's amazing what God had done. In verse 3, it says, Therefore Adonai Zedek, king of Jerusalem, sent word to Hohem, king of Hebron, Piram, king of Jarmuth, Japhiah, king of Lashes, and Deber, king of Eglon, saying, Come up and help me. We will attack Gibeon because they had made a peace with Joshua and the Israelites. So the five Amorite kings, the kings of Jerusalem, Hebron, Jarmuth, Lashish, and Eglon, joined forces advanced with all their armies, besieged Gibeon, and fought against it. You see, when we choose to follow the God of the Bible, when we choose to believe Him and believe His people and submit ourselves to His plan instead of our own, those that we used to have alliances and oaths and treaties with, and now because we have died to ourselves, and the only way to break an alliance and oath in a treaty is to die See, when we come to Christ, what happens is we die to the alliances, the oaths, and the treaties that we make, and now we ask God, which ones do you want us to uphold? And then people get really upset, and that's exactly what happens here. These other kings are looking and saying, wait a minute, you can't do that. We're coming after you. This is also going to test Israel to see if Israel will back up their treaty, their alliance, and their oath and come to the defense of Gibeon, or... Will Israel say, man, we can finally get rid of the mess we made. We'll just kind of wait a few days and see how it turns out for Gibeon. Or, you know what? We'll pretend like we're going to go fight for them, but we'll just let them get destroyed. And then we don't have to deal with the mess that happened. And can you imagine? There were probably people discussing that. Don't go fight with Gibeon. Let them die. Like, it was a bad decision you made anyway. You didn't realize the decision you were making. There's no need to go defend them now. No, 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 no. Watch what Joshua, Yahweh saves is his name. Watch what he does to save the people of Gibeon, even though they were deceivers. While they were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Yahweh who saves is getting ready to put his life on the line for these Gibeonites. Verse 6, Then the men of Gibeon sent word to Joshua in the camp at Gilgal, Don't abandon your servants. They still reply, We're your servants your slaves. Come quickly and save us. Help us for all the Amorite kings living in the hill country have joined forces against us. This is their moment. What are they going to do? Are they going to quit and say, well, you know, we made a bad decision and if they're dead, well, then there's no treaty. So we don't have to be held. So if we just kind of wait instead of hurrying, we can get out of this. Verse seven. So Joshua and his whole military force, his whole military force, Even in the other battles, they didn't take their whole military force. Including all the fighting men came from Gilgal. The Lord said to Joshua, do not be afraid of them, for I have handed them over to you. Not one of them will be able to stand against you. Even in the midst of the mess they made and the bad treaty, God is honored at the fact that they're standing up for their alliance, oath, and treaty. They're standing for him as them giving their word. Like the God says, you know, even though you messed up, don't be afraid. I'm still going to be with you. I'm still going to work through the mess you've created. I'm still going to do what only I can do. Again, this shows the incredible grace and mercy of God. It shows that he cares 
about our yes and our no, what we say and do. It goes on in verse 9 of chapter 10. It says, so Joshua caught them by surprise after marching all night from Gilgal. You talk about getting there immediately. Joshua is taking his covenant seriously. Even after the people had grumbled and complained and and said, you made a bad decision. He's like, I don't care. We're going to do what I said we were going to do because I represent God and and it's going to cost us. But this is what we're doing. They marched all night. Verse 10, the Lord threw them into confusion before Israel, the other armies. He defeated them in a great slaughter at Gibeon, chased them through the ascent of Beth Horon and struck them down as far as Azka and Makeda. I mean, think about this. They didn't think they would run to this. They probably thought, oh yeah, they made this treaty and they weren't supposed to, and we know they weren't. And so, you know, they probably won't come in a hurry. They'll, because that's what their heart would do. That's what their heart would be towards other people. See, that's not God's heart towards people. God says in the New Testament, Peter says that God desires that none would perish, but all would come to repentance. That the only reason he's waiting, he hasn't brought his full wrath, is because he wants people to know who he is. And even if we come to God sometimes on a false premise, he can still work with that if our belief is in him, not in the premise that we want. And that's exactly what we see here in this ancient story of God's people. Verse 11, as they fled before Israel, the Lord threw large hailstones on them from the sky along the descent of Beth Horon all the way to Azka, and they died. More of them died from the hail than the Israelites killed with the sword. Look, not only, not only does God come through, but oftentimes what you'll find is that God will do the most amazing miracles when we keep the simplest of our covenants and our word. When we're willing to keep our word before God and do what he asks, it is amazing to watch what God will do in the lives of people to fulfill his promises and his inheritance that he said he would do. In this moment, God's bringing hailstones that don't even hit the Israelites, but these things are so large, they're taking out the armies. This was to put terror and fear in everyone to say, stop fighting against the God of Israel. This isn't what he wants. He doesn't want to destroy. You can move. You can leave. You can surrender. But this isn't an option to fight against him. This would have been a testimony to say, don't do this. So it was also a merciful thing. It goes on in verse 12 and says, On the day the Lord gave the Amorites over to the Israelites, Joshua spoke This is huge. So not only does God do a miracle through the hail, but he even does one of the greatest miracles you may not have ever heard of in all of Scripture. It says, On the day the Lord gave the Amorites over to the Israelites, Joshua spoke to the Lord in the presence of Israel. So he's praying. He's speaking to the Lord with everybody watching. Whenever a prophet speaks boldly or speaks publicly and it doesn't happen, It means he falsely prophesied. We see this happen in our world today where you've got pastors and preachers and people that'll claim things publicly and then they don't happen and then they're allowed to stay in position and still lead people. That's not what happens here. And this is what Joshua said in the presence of Israel. He said, sun, stand still over Gibeon and moon over the valley of Agalon. 
And the sun stood still and the moon stopped until the nation took vengeance on its enemies. Isn't this written in the book of Joshar? In other words, another historical count said this happened. It was a weird day. So the sun stopped in the middle of the sky and delayed its setting almost a full day. Wow. That, that's incredible. That God, in the midst of a deceiving Gibeon, in the midst of this mess they've created, God says, I am going to show the kind of God I am, that I am full of grace and mercy. And yes, there are consequences. I just want to show that I am the God who has an inheritance that's coming. I'm going to do works that will amaze you. It doesn't always mean it's for our earthly benefit. It just means he's going to work. He does this amazing miracle. And so often we quit in our own strength when God is right when we're ready, right on the edge of a miracle. We go, I'm just too, it's too much. I'm not going to march all night. I'm not going to do that. Oh, it's just too bad. Or we want God to just bring hailstones without marching, without going out. We just want God to do a miracle instead of moving forward and saying, God, I trust you. And if the miracle doesn't happen, that's okay. And if it does, I'll give you praise. You see, they kept their covenant. See, Jesus says to pick up your cross and follow me. He says, you will have trouble, but take heart. I am with you. You see, we want to be about making quick, rash decisions But there are consequences to the decisions that we make. And even if we make a quick and rash decision, one of the two responses is either to uphold to the decision, the alliance, oath and treaty, the yes and the no we give, or it's to repent of it. To put on sack, to cry out to God and say, we were wrong. I'm so sorry we did this. But recognizing that we, when we do that, we discredit his name. And we have to ask him and others for forgiveness and lay down our lives. And in this sense, Joshua says, no, we will lay down our lives so that the Gibeonites can have the life of servants of God. It's a powerful thing. Now, fast forward a little bit because the Gibeonites come back up again later. It's a powerful story of the consequences of this decision and the consequences of not keeping your alliance oaths and treaties. In 2 Samuel 21, it says, during King David's reign, there was a famine for three successive years. So David inquired of the Lord. Pause. There's a famine. That means no food. For three years. It takes three years for David to finally inquire of the Lord. You think Joshua and the people forgot to inquire before they went to fight in Ai? They forgot to seek the Lord before they made a covenant with Gibeon? David's had a famine for three years, and finally he goes, Oh, you know, now that it's been happening three years and people are dying and it's really bad, maybe I should like seek the Lord on this. And that's what happens with us. God typically has to make it so bad for us that we finally stop striving in our own strength, making our own alliances, our own oaths, our own treaties that aren't working, and just cry out to Him. And He inquired of the Lord. Look at what it says, 2 Samuel 21. It says, The Lord answered, It is because of the blood shed by Saul and his family when he killed the Gibeonites. Verse 2, the Gibeonites were not Israelites, but rather a remnant of the Amorites. The Israelites had taken an oath concerning them, but Saul had tried to kill them in his zeal for the Israelites and Judah. You see, in his zeal that he wanted to, to make everything right and create the perfect nation and the perfect kingdom for himself and his sons and the future of Israel, 
Saul didn't care about the alliance oaths and treaties that God had made that represented his inheritance in his name. He just said, I'm going to do this. I'm going to show everybody. I'm get... And it's going to get real costly. It cost Saul his kingdom. This because of other decisions he made where he kept trying to keep his kingship and kept trying to keep everything. And God was like, you're not the right king. Turn the kingdom over to David and serve him. And Saul wouldn't do it. However, his son, Jonathan, Saul's son, Jonathan, wanted to turn the kingdom over to David. But he couldn't if his dad was king. And David, look at this. David, even when he was being pursued and being tried uh, tried to be killed by Saul because David was anointed as king while Saul was still king. And Saul's like, I got to kill this guy so he doesn't take the kingdom. Even though he's being pursued on separate occasions, David refused to take Saul's life, even one time when he was using the bathroom and could have killed him because he said, you're still the king. And until God takes you out, until God deals with the alliance oath and treaty, or until you surrender to God and to me, I am not going to take your life. I'm not going to take matters into my own hands. That's David. And so when David's looking at this oath that was broken by Saul, he takes this seriously because David was a person who took his word and the oaths and promises and inheritance of God seriously. Then it says, so David summoned the Gibeonites, the ones that were left, and spoke to them. He asked the Gibeonites, hey, what should I do for you? How can I make atonement? In other words, a covering. How do we cover this so that you will bring a blessing on the Lord's inheritance? In other words, I recognize that you've been wronged. I recognize that there's something terrible that's happened. And I'm asking you, how do we make atonement? Look, the only way to make atonement in Scripture was blood. It was the atonement of the blood of the lamb, the blood of the red heifer that atoned for the sins of the people. There is no forgiveness of sins without the shedding of blood, no remission of sin without the shedding of blood, the Bible says. That it takes death to end a covenant, to end the curse and the, the, the oath that God gave that we were going to die spiritually. It takes a blood death. That's what Christ did for us. But at this time, Christ hadn't died yet. And so he's going and David's saying, oh my goodness, we've done a terrible thing to you. You've been faithful. God has used you and, and we have treated you badly because why? David was reinstituting the right forms of worship and he recognized the water carriers and the wood carriers like they'd been mistreated. So in 2 Samuel 21, 4, it says, the Gibeonites said to him, we're not asking for money from Saul or his family and we cannot put anyone to death in Israel. In other words, we don't have the right to just go and take life when we want to, and we'll show you and take vengeance. He says, or they say, whatever you say, I will do, David said. That's, I'm sorry, that's what David says. They replied to the king, as for the man who annihilated us and plotted to destroy us so we would not exist within the whole territory of Israel. Let seven of his male descendants be handed over to us so that we may hang them in the presence of the Lord at Gibbeth of Saul, the Lord's chosen. The king answered, I will hand them over. The breaking of this oath and what Saul did years earlier has grave consequences later. And David looks and says, okay, blood has to be, this is brutal. 
Now, again, today we point to Christ. Today, the church points to the blood that Christ shed, that we don't have to shed one another's blood anymore because we have Christ's blood that's been shed. But at this time, this is an image of Christ. Because let me ask you, who else was hung on a tree? And the Bible says that anyone hung on a tree is cursed. You see, God wasn't going to hang seven guys on a tree and seven of Saul's sons on a tree without hanging his own son on a tree. See, God doesn't judge people one way and not judge righteously his own people and even himself and take responsibility for the oaths and treaties and covenants he's made. When he created the world, the Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit made a covenant to uphold their part and do what they were supposed to do to uphold the covenant and to pay the penalty for the sin of the world. So what is being done here is a picture of Christ. It's a picture of the need that the king will have to lay the life of his son or sons down for the people, for restoration. That's the gospel. That's who Jesus... That, this is an amazing story. It looks tragic and it is tragic, but underneath it is this story of grace and love. Verse 7 of 2 Samuel 21, it says, David spared Mephibosheth, the son of, of Saul's son, Jonathan, because of the oath of the Lord that was between David and Jonathan, Saul's son. Look, this is critical. See, David, when we read 1 Samuel 20, so 1 Samuel chapter 20, in verse 14, Jonathan is making a treaty, an oath, a, an alliance with David. And he says, if I continue to live, treat me with the Lord's faithful love. But if I die, Jonathan says, don't ever withdraw your faithful love from my household. Not even when the Lord cuts off every one of David's enemies from the face of the earth. Then Jonathan made a covenant with the house of David saying, may the Lord hold David's enemies accountable. Jonathan once again swore to David in his love for him because he loved him as he loved himself. This is another picture of the gospel that Jonathan is saying, I believe that I, should, I could be king if my father doesn't die, then he'll hand the kingdom over to me. But I surrender my rights to kingship to you because God has anointed you king. All I ask is that you recognize my family. And Mephibosheth was one of Saul's sons that came from Jonathan. The other sons that we get see that they're going to be executed, the seven, that's, that's not what happened. It was from other people. This is Jonathan's son. God is still holding to the oaths, alliances, and treaties that he's made years and years and years and years and years later. God doesn't break his oaths and promises. It goes on in 2 Samuel 9 verse 1. It says this, David asked, is there anyone remaining from Saul's family? This is after David has now come to the kingship. He, he's looking around at his kingdom and he says, is there anyone left from Saul's family I can show kindness to because of Jonathan? There was a servant of Saul's family named Ziba. They summoned him to David and the king said to him, are you Ziba? I am your servant, he replied. So the king asked, is there anyone left of Saul's family I can show the kindness of God to? Ziba said to the king, there is still Jonathan's son who was in injured in both feet. He was injured at five years old when Jonathan and Saul were killed and the nurse was fleeing with him. She dropped him and both his feet were injured, crippled. The king asked him, where is he? Ziba answered the king, you'll find him in Debar, at the house of Machar, son of Amiel. Lodabar means nothing. That's really what it means. Like it's a place of despair or nothing. 
verse 5 so of 2 Samuel 9. So King David had him brought from the house of Machar, son of Amiel, in Lodabar. This would have been scary because back then, kings killed the line of people behind them. They, they got rid of them. They killed them off so they couldn't be competition. Listen, Mephibosheth would have been scared to death at this moment. And this is what it says, verse 6, Samuel, 2 Samuel 9. Mephibosheth, son of Jonathan, son of Saul, came to David, bowed down to the ground, and paid homage. David said, Mephibosheth, I'm your servant, he replied. Don't be afraid, David said to him, since I intend to show you kindness because of your father, Jonathan. Because of the father, I'm going to show you kindness. That's what Jesus does for us. Because of his heavenly father, he shows us kindness. Because of the oaths and covenants, he said, I will restore to you all your grandfather Saul's fields, and you will always eat meals at my table. Mephibosheth bowed down and said, what is your servant that you would take an interest in a dead dog like me? And the king summoned Saul's attendant Ziba and said to him, I have given to your master's grandson all that belonged to Saul and his family. Listen, this had never been done in the history of man up until this point, that a king would reestablish another king. That has never happened. And that's exactly what Jesus does for us. He invites us to be co-heirs with him, to be a part. To be, he invites us to the table to eat with him, even though it was our ancestors that wanted to kill him, to get rid of his line, his people. See, this is the gospel we need today. In our world, this is what we need to tell people about. In 2 Samuel 9, 10, it says, you, your sons, your servants are to work the ground for him. And you are to bring in the crops so your master's grandsons will have food to eat. But Mephibosheth, your master's grandson is always to eat at my table. That's what Jesus says to us. Now Ziba had 15 sons and 20 servants. Ziba said to the king, your servant will do all my Lord the king commands. So Mephibosheth ate at the David's table just like one of the king's sons. Mephibosheth had a young son whose name was Micah. All those living in Ziba's house were Mephibosheth's servants. However, Mephibosheth lived in Jerusalem because he always ate at the king's table. His feet had been injured. Listen, you may have been injured in life. You may have been persecuted. You may have deceived like the Gibeonites. But can I tell you, there is a God who offers his peace. He gives his word and his oath. That if you will know him, if you'll surrender to him, that he will give you an inheritance in him, just like David models here. And just like Joshua fought on behalf of the Gibeonites. Going back to 2 Samuel 21, it says, With those seven sons of Saul, he spared Mephibosheth. Here's what happens. But the king took Amoroni and Mephibosheth. That's not, that's the second son. So another son had the same name as Jonathan's sons. The name was repeated. That's common, right? In, in multiple families, people have, you know, same names. But that's a different son. Because it says, who were the two sons of Rizpah, daughter of Ai, had born uh, had born to Saul, and the five sons whom Merib, daughter of Saul, had born to Adriel, son of Barzilla, and the Mahavathite. 
and handed them over to the Gibeonites. They hanged them on the hill in the presence of the Lord. The seven of them died together. They were executed in the first days of the harvest at the beginning of the barley harvest. Don't miss that last part. They are executed, okay? The beginning of the barley harvest is the beginning of Passover. Let me repeat that. The beginning of the barley harvest is the beginning of Passover. These seven sons were executed just like Jesus was going to be executed someday as the Passover, the atonement, the covering for the sins that had happened before. They had to be willing. They they went and did that. Like, guys, this is what we're called to do. We're called to be God's servants. We're called to lay down our lives. We're called to give our lives so that we can show people that there is a God who loves them, that, that, that there's a God who keeps his oaths and he's serious about his commands, his treaties. This is a beautiful picture, again, of the gospel, even in the midst of the death. God isn't holding these seven accountable to anything. He's not holding his own son accountable to. The problem is we don't like this story because it doesn't give us the alliances, oaths, and treaties that we want for our benefit. And God says, it's not about what you want for your benefit. It's about my glory. It's about making me known. And it's about showing people that I'm faithful to what I've said is true. And I'm faithful to those who are faithful to me. This is what Jesus said in Matthew 5, 31. It said, it was also said, whoever divorces his wife must give her a written notice of divorce. But I tell you, everyone who divorces his wife, except in the case of sexual immorality, causes her to commit adultery. And whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. I'm not going to go deeply into divorce right now, but we take it way too casually about our covenants and about the decisions that we make. There is great consequences to breaking our oaths and treaties and covenants. Is it forgivable? Absolutely. God forgives me for for breaking and we can repent, but we can't just pretend like it didn't happen or that our life's better because we did it. We've got to deal with the reality of what we did. And then we have to look like David did and say, what can I do to represent God and his treaties and oaths and covenants in the midst of the bad decision that I made? We have to wrestle with that. In verse 33, he says, again, Jesus says in Matthew 5, 33, again, you've heard it said to our ancestors, you must not break your oath, but you must keep your oath to the Lord. But I tell you, don't take an oath at all, either by heaven because it's God's throne or by the earth because it's his footstool or by Jerusalem because it's the city of the great king. Neither should you swear by your head because you cannot make a single hair white or black, but let your word yes be yes and your no be no. Anything more than this is from the evil one. In other words, don't try to make some spectacle of, oh, look how committed I am. Look how, oh, I'm just going to die for you. Just, yeah, no. And, and if you don't keep your yes or no, then it means you did something evil. And you need to admit you did something evil, either originally or now. And you need to repent of it. And you need to ask others to forgive you and repent. That's what this is. It's not about getting what you want. It's about, well, I gave my yes so I could get what I wanted. And then I realized, wow, that's the struggle Jesus is asking us to enter into. And it's a struggle that has been since the beginning. As we wrap up the message today, you need to know that the evil one wants us to break our covenant. He wants us to not die for Gibeon, but see that when things start happening, that we have a way out. 
He doesn't want us to represent God well like we've seen in this passage. He wants us to be more like Saul than David. He wants us to be more like the Amorite kings, or the, I'm sorry, the, the kings of the Canaanite kings, rather than to be like Joshua and his people. In Joshua 10, this is how it finishes up. After they fought this battle, after they defended the Gibeonites, after they've kept their words, this is what Joshua says in 10.14. There has never been a day like it before or since, where the sun has stopped, where the hailstones came, where where someone traveled all night to defend a, a group of people that were deceivers. There's never been a day like it before or since when the Lord listened to the voice of a man. Remember Joshua? Cried out on that day in front of the people and asked God to make the sun stand still. And it says, because the Lord fought for Israel. Do you believe that God wants to fight for you? That he'll keep his covenant for you? Not necessarily for your earthly benefit, but for your heavenly joy and the fruit of the Spirit and the heavenly inheritance that's coming. Verse 15 says, Then Joshua and all Israel with him returned to the camp at Gilgal. In other words, they went back where God rolled away the sin of the past. That's what Gilgal is. And they went back. See, this is a beautiful picture. God wants to hear your heart and hear our voice. He wants us to be careful with our alliances, our oaths, and our treaties. He wants us to make our ultimate alliance to Him, to surrender to Him and to be His representatives in the world. And when we fail in that, there is grace, there is forgiveness. He wants us to learn how to move in and out of relationships with one another and with a lost world carefully to honor Him, just like we see in these stories. Listen, there's a lot here. I encourage you to go back and read through, and here's the question I would ask. Have you surrendered your life to Jesus, to Yahweh saves, to the New Testament, Joshua? Do you believe that you can know with 100% certainty that you have the promised inheritance of heaven coming because you've surrendered and you are the servant of the Lord, the Most High, as the Gibeonites knew? If you don't, can I just encourage you to bow your head like we see Joshua praying and David and others and just cry out to him, to seek him instead of just pretending like it'll get better. Seek him now while he might be found, the Bible says, and ask him to change you, to make you a person who will keep your covenants, your oaths, your, that you will repent when you don't, that you will be a person that God wants you to be because you understand that God is the ultimate being that has been everything for you. And God made it clear in His Son who hung on a tree for us and gave His life that He would be our covering, that we deserve to die for our deception, for our sins. And God says, no, I'll forgive and I will make a way for you to enter into a relationship with me. And I'll be faithful to that relationship even when you're unfaithful. You see, that's the God of our book. It's powerful, and it is a message we desperately need in the world today. Because in the world today, we're just continually fighting with one another and trying to get people on our side to attack one another instead of just calling people to the Word like Joshua did, like David did, calling people to the alliances and covenants, saying, this is our God. Join with Him in what He is doing. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this word and this message. Help us to be faithful people, to believe in the alliances and treaties and oaths that you've made, 
that you continue to fulfill to this day, that you don't break your word. You stay faithful like no one and nothing else on the planet or in the universe. We praise you. I pray that if anyone here has not surrendered their life to you, that today would be the day they do it. They would come to you, the mess and all, just like the Gibeonites and say, Gibeonites and say, well, I just want to be your servant. I surrender. May you be my God. And if they do that, the Bible says that you will involve them in the ministry that you have for them. And for those of us who have said we have surrendered, I pray that we would be careful and recognize the consequences and repent if we've not followed through. We praise you in your name. Amen. Thanks for joining us. Have a great week. If you need to reach out to us, please do so at fxchurch.com. You can contact any of our pastoral staff. There's a place for prayer requests if there's a way we can pray for you. God bless.